when the people hear of their wrongdoing and confess their sins, they take drastic action. They say, if we have broken the law of God and we've joined ourselves in ways we shouldn't, we shall separate from that. And all the difficulty that may come with that, come what may, we want to be people with hearts on fire with our dedication to the Lord. What are we willing or not willing to do when our Lord calls upon us to do something? You know the New Testament passages. Whoever says that father or mother or houses or lands are more worthy than me is not worthy of me. C.S. Lewis once said, whenever you said to yourself, I can't forgive him. What he did is unforgivable and inexcusable. Lewis says, well, that's how you know that it's something worth forgiving because God has forgiven the unforgivable and inexcusable in you. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. Well, I uh, I bit off more than I can chew. If you noticed on the bulletin, it says we're going to cover Ezra and Nehemiah tonight. We will not be doing that. There is more than enough in Ezra, and I am told that the kids have 26 memory verses they want to recite for us tonight. So we're going to stay in the book of Ezra tonight, but I promise uh, you'll be blessed. There's plenty there. What is the gospel? Remember, when Paul tries to give a shorthand in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, well, you remember, Christ died, he was buried, he rose again, he was seen by others, and we often put that down as the obvious answer. The gospel is death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's true. But as we talked about in a sermon several Sundays ago, the gospel also has depth and breadth. What does it mean that Jesus died and was buried and rose again? And who is this Jesus that died and was buried and rose again? And what comes about as a result of the fact that he died and was buried and rose again? You can fill in the gaps. Right there in 1 Corinthians 15, he fills in the gaps. Notice, he doesn't just say he died, was buried, and rose again. He says he died according to the Scriptures. Was buried and rose again according to the Scriptures. In other words, the Old Testament told us this was going to happen. It's one of the reasons why we're told in Galatians, the gospel was preached to Abraham. Or in Romans chapter 1, the first couple verses, he says, Paul says, I was set apart for the gospel of God. That's about his son, Jesus, who was descended from and is a descendant of David and was declared with power to be the son of God by the resurrection of the dead. So when the Bible talks about the coming son of David, when the Bible talks about God's great plan, when God, the Bible talks about God uniting Jew and Gentile under one roof, or God having a people through whom he'll bless the world, we're hearing the story of the gospel. So we're asking, where is the gospel in the book of Ezra? You remember where we left off. The kings were a dismal read. The kings were about how bad we can possibly be, and yet the beauty of God's light shines against a dark backdrop. So the chronicler comes along in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. He says, let me tell you the same stories you already read in 1st and 2nd Kings, but let's tell them in a more happy way. You'll be glad you read this, says the chronicler. Let's talk about how there's actually hope because the glory days, the glory days of Saul and David and Solomon, that's just a picture of what God has in mind. And he promises that that's going to be his story. 
So if you're stuck or if you're coming back home from uh, a prison and you're trying to figure out who you are in the midst of the rubble, remember the story. Remember who you are. That's Chronicles. And Second Chronicles ends with an edict from King Cyrus of Persia who conquers the conqueror, right? Israel was held in captivity by Babylon. Persia comes and takes over Babylon and says, who are these people? Well, these are the Israelites and they're under captivity. Okay, here's the edict. If you're under our rule, you can go back home. You can take up the gods that you believe in. You can set up your homeland with our blessing. And the chronicler says, God stirred him up to do this. The book of Ezra begins, the first four verses, reminding us of the edict of Cyrus and includes more. Includes the edict saying things about how great God is. And that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is in fact the God who we ought to support so that his building, his homeland, can be rebuilt. Ezra is the scribe who gets top billing in the book. But at first, it seems like the book is misnamed. Have you ever seen a movie where it advertised some great character, some great actor, and that's why you went to see the movie? And that actor had like five minutes in the movie? And you thought, this was a bait and switch. This is how they got me into the theater. Here's a book. The book is called Ezra. It only has, like, I think, 10 chapters. And Ezra doesn't appear until chapter 7. Is the book misnamed? No. There's truth behind all of this, but it may not be the truth you think. Maybe you've heard the the simple line, and simple lines are great. Simple lines help get us into a story, and simple lines, what we teach our kids. Maybe you've heard the simple line, Ezra built the, the temple and Nehemiah builds the walls. Well, that's helpful, but the physical temple gets rebuilt before Ezra even shows up on the scene. And yet there's something to that idea that Ezra helps rebuild the temple. Let's see if we have eyes to see it. Cyrus has announced that you can go back home. In fact, he says, we'll give you silver and gold and goods and beasts and whatever you need so you can rebuild the house of the Lord. Sounds wonderful. The edict and the first four verses of the book extol how wonderful the Lord is. But remember, they're not going home to build their own independent nation state like it once was. They're going back to form a tiny community within just one corner of the Persian Empire. And the people, according to chapter 2, verse 1, return home each to their own village, their little Judah villages. And this includes a list of people. And we see the list in chapter two. There are priests. There are Levites. There are temple servants. For example, there are male and female singers who are specially chosen to serve in the temple. And the heads of households got together and gave as much as they were able, the language throughout Ezra of free will offering or as much as they were able is important. In other words, no one felt gouged. Remember, they just came from captivity. Nobody felt gouged. What they felt was a sense of want. I want to serve. I want to do my part. So everybody gave as they were able and there was enough 
according to chapter 2, verses 68 and 69, to get started and to clothe the priests. And they were very careful to do everything according to the statutes of the Lord. For example, some of those who were returning home claimed that they belonged to the priestly class. But the folks who were keeping the books looked and they expected proof of lineage. And if you couldn't prove your proof of lineage, this is chapter 2, verses 62 and 63, then you were excluded from that role. Why? Because it was extremely important that if we're going to come back, when you do things God's way, and the priests come from a certain line, and they have a certain job, and if we can't prove you belong there, that's not your role. In addition, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, the first thing they build is the altar to offer burnt sacrifices as prescribed. The right way, at the right time, by the right people. They're going to keep the law of Moses, and the first thing they build is the altar. Then they collected more free will offerings. And this is chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. And this is so the masons and the carpenters could get to work and they could go all the way down and get cedars from Lebanon so they could build the temple of the Lord. They appointed Levites to oversee the work. And once the foundations of the temple were laid, the priests showed up in their priestly garments. The Levite singers gathered with their trumpets and their cymbals and they praised the Lord in what's called a responsorial song. That's where one person says, praise the Lord, and all the people say, praise ye the Lord, and, and one speaks and the other speaks. And together, they proclaimed the God of Israel. And in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 say, they did it according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Please notice, they're trying to keep the rules right. And the people cheered, and they wept, and some were cheering, and some were weeping, and it was so loud. You couldn't tell the difference, but you could hear it from a mile away. <clears throat> now, the building project faced serious opposition from the outside. There were people who opposed Judah. They didn't want the temple to be rebuilt. It's the beginning of what they had experienced before, a god who would often fight and win, and who wants that? And so let's try to keep that from happening. What did they do? They made discouraging threats. They bribed the counselors. They accused, they wrote accusatory letters to the king, and they said, you need to stop this. And the king, of course, realizing there's a disturbance in the force, not really knowing the full story, writes a letter and says, you guys should stop this until I tell you you can do it again. Chapter 5 begins with the question, is this going to be the same old story? Back in your homeland, but not really feeling at home. Chapter 5 begins by reminding us that God always has a presence. And he had a couple of prophets by the name of Haggai and Zechariah. And they're out there encouraging them. Basically, if I can put words in their mouth. So you stopped building. Yeah, we did. Why? Well, I got this letter from this uh, human leader who says I shouldn't build, you know, the house that belongs to the God of the heavens. Well, that doesn't seem like a very good bet. If I were you, the God of the heavens wants it built and some Persian king says you should. Well, then I guess we're going to build. And they start building again. And some people say, what are you doing? Who do you think you are to build this thing? And they say, well, why don't you go write a letter about it? And they do. 
They write a letter, and they, together they write a letter, and they say to the king, the King Darius, could you look and see if there's any record anywhere that says we're allowed to do this? And the king does that. King looks in the edicts, and he sees this edict from Cyrus, and he writes a letter back, and he says, leave them alone. In fact, let's see if we can help them out even more. You need wheat, you need oil, you can have it. Now, the reader's supposed to realize what's going on here. The Spirit of the Lord is stirring up these pagan leaders to help make sure that God gets his way. Look at this interesting verse, chapter 6 and verse 11. Just for good measure, the king adds this. If anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. Um, that, that would... That would make me say, all right, why don't you guys go ahead and go back to work. But I can't help but notice that if you break or violate these rules, we're going to hang you on wood. Just hold that thought for a second. On that happy note, the temple is finished and urged on by the encouraging support and the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. The people celebrate the dedication of the temple once more. And you know, somewhere in their mind, they're thinking about their father's father's father who stood there when Solomon dedicated the temple and all the glory of that language about how the glory was so great, you know, no one could contain it. And they set in place all the right people in all the right places, chapter six, verse 18, as it is written in the book of Moses. If all we had were the first six chapters, here's where I think the story would be. God gave rules, the people came back, and they kept all the rules. But there's more than that in this book. There's gospel in this book. And it starts in chapter 7, and that's starting with a man named Ezra. I really love that chapter six ends with this beautiful language about them keeping the Passover. And it says everyone kept the Passover, not just the Israelites, but everyone who had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the God of Israel. Reminds me of the dedication of the temple, not just the Israelites, but anyone who comes from outside who wants to find your name here, may they be glorified. Even the king of Assyria ends up serving the right side. And the text says the Lord made them joyful. We see the gospel. We see the glory, what was planned and purposed and promised, the glory days of the early kings, the days the chronicler retold in a hopeful way. We see God keeping his promise of people called by God himself, willing to be the hands and feet of the Lord. And yet through all this, God is given credit for the glory. God stirred up the people. God worked in the hearts of kings. No reason to fear rulers. No reason to fear the powers that be when God the Lord is on your side. And the people are careful to keep the commands of the Lord. But I want you to notice that obeying the Lord is and always has been, first of all, a matter of the heart. And only second, a matter of the hands. Keeping all the right procedures was always for an intended purpose, one that should never be misunderstood or mistaken for outward expressions. Enter Ezra in chapter 7. 
Remember how when the people came back, they came in waves. Ezra comes in a later wave. And the first thing we're told about him in verse 6 is that he's a scribe. We're going to hear about scribes in the Gospels. Remember, the, they seem to be the bad guys. You got the Pharisees, you got the Sadducees, and you got the scribes. But remember that Jesus says, do what they say, but not what they do. In other words, I have a role for Pharisees and a role for Sadducees and a role for scribes. Ezra's a scribe. It seems to be somebody who studies. He's also a priest. We're told he's a scribe in verse 6. He's a priest in verse 12. And we're told that the good hand of God was on him. And what did he do? Verse 10, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. There's no doubt that the idea of obeying the commands of God continues to be an important point in the second half of the book. But it's not called the law of Moses anymore. It's called the law of the Lord. The move from what Moses prescribed what David prescribed to what it means to follow the God of the heavens is an expansive point. And I want you to see what's going to happen here. It says that he came to teach, to study, to preach, and to focus on the law of God. And then they took up more money. Well, they've already built the temple. So what are they going to do with it now? Well, look at verse 27. Not only does Ezra come to teach, he comes to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. If this was a sermon on Ezra, then maybe we'd spend some time talking about how beautifying the house of the Lord is also part of the command of God. What does that mean for us today? But I don't want to do that. I want to talk about the gospel. And what I find interesting is Ezra's job comes after they've built the physical structure. But he has a role to play in how it's presented, beautifying the house of the Lord. In chapters 8 and 9, Ezra does some interesting things. He gathers the leaders and he checks the records and he finds no sons of Levi, so he goes about correcting this. He also fasted and prayed for a safe journey. I find this interesting, maybe for another lesson some other day. He considers carrying some armed guards. He thinks about getting some bouncers to get in the front of the line as they go. But he says, I would be embarrassed to do that because I already told the king we have nothing to worry about because God's on our side. What would it look like to tell the king we don't worry because we have God on our side and we're packing? You know, in other words, this is how you know that we're, in other words, it shows two fronts to say that we have, we, we trust in God but we also think we have to take care of ourselves. It's an interesting question there. But I find that Ezra also comes to realize that the people had not completely separated themselves from the habits and customs of the nations around them. And the main way in which they had failed to do that is that they had intermarried with people who worshipped other gods. Again, if this was a discussion about Ezra in depth, I'd want to spend some time saying, don't use this passage as a uh, encouragement to you to break up your family. Okay? This is not a passage about that. In fact, in the New Testament, 
when the question is asked, what should I do if I'm married to somebody that doesn't believe in Christ? Paul actually says, whatever you do, do all you can to stay in that relationship. So that's not, that's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage goes back to uh, chapter 9, verse 2, for example, where he says, God gave a command to these people under this covenant not to intermarry because of the desire to show what holiness looks like for a people that don't intermarry with the pagan and the pagan gods. And for that reason, he realizes that they've done something that puts them on a bad front, on a bad path. Now, there are a number of interesting things that we could consider in these chapters, but I want to emphasize where I see the gospel being played out. I've hinted at it several times, so let's just get to it. Three things. First, notice the emphasis on the real temple and beautifying the real temple. You know the book of Hebrews says that all this stuff in the Old Testament are types and shadows. You know, because you've read your New Testament, you know what the true temple of God is. It's people. It's you and me. It's you and me in Christ, the true temple. Turns out what is true in Christ, what's realized in Christ, was always true. It's realized in Christ, but it was always true. They had built the physical temple. They had followed all the rules, or so they thought. But Ezra asks, where is the heart of the people? And by helping set the heart of the people right, Ezra helps rebuild the true temple of God. The people who are called by his name, more interested and whether or not they are solely devoted to God than any of the other things. God was never meant to be contained in a building made with human hands. The real visible place where the glory of God is going to be seen by the world was always in people with hearts on fire for God and God alone. And Ezra helps rebuild that. How does he do it? In chapter 9, Ezra gives a beautiful prayer. I'd like you to look at it with me. Look at where the emphasis is placed. The prayer starts in uh, verse six, in which he says, I'm ashamed and I blush to leave and lift my face to you. This is how all these prayers all start, which is, you know, we've been guilty of a great guilt from our forefathers until now. Our sins, our mistakes, our plundering. It's all been to our shame. And then the good news. You know how these prayers go. We have been bad, but you have been good. Look at verse 9. Uh, verse 8. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. And yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. He has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And he goes on to say, he has punished us far less 
than our sins deserve. And when the light is shown on the glory of God, the people respond. So number one, he focuses on the real temple, the heart of people who are devoted to God. Number two, he puts the emphasis on the glory of God. And then number three, as a result, when the people hear of their wrongdoing and confess their sins, they take drastic action. They say, if we have broken the law of God and we've joined ourselves in ways we shouldn't, we will shall separate from that. And all the difficulty that may come with that, come what may, we want to be people with hearts on fire with our dedication to the Lord. What are we willing or not willing to do when our Lord calls upon us to do something? You know the New Testament passages. Whoever says that father or mother or houses or lands are more worthy than me is not worthy of me. Discipleship often demands more than we're willing to give. C.S. Lewis once said, whenever you say to yourself, I can't forgive him, what he did is unforgivable and inexcusable. Lewis says, well, that's how you know that it's something worth forgiving because God has forgiven the unforgivable and inexcusable in you. They are willing to do what seems impossible because they want to be people with hearts on fire for the Lord. Last passage, and then we'll end. Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into one holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Holy Spirit. Let the gospel of God as told through Ezra remind us what the true temple is about putting the focus on what God has done and in result to be willing to give our hearts in full allegiance regardless of what the cost may be. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.